Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State, VPR's newest podcast. And our first episode is going to start with a little bit of time traveling. 1945, I remember when we got that, because we had a good-sized farm, milk 30 cows, and had two pair horses, and... What we're hearing is an interview with a guy named Fred Fletcher. Fred is a farmer, a lifelong farmer in Vermont. This is Julie Roberts. She's the one interviewing Fred back in, like, 2004-ish? It may have been a little later than that. I don't remember, honestly. Anyway, Julie is a linguist at the University of Vermont. She's been studying the Vermont accent for decades. And she talked to Fred at his farm in Fletcher in Franklin County. Every time I've seen him, he's been wearing his, you know... Farming clothes and jeans and boots, and he does not take a lot of time off. I think he told me when I spoke with him that he had had one vacation in his life. You can't leave the animals by themselves. No, no. But it was a, it's a way of life, so it is. You can't do anything else. I mean, a lot of years you don't hardly just get by, you know. Yeah. And the reason we're hearing this is that nowadays Fred is exceptional. Julie says his upbringing and his relative isolation, you know, working on this rural farm for years, it all means that hearing this tape is like sticking your ear in the past and listening to how Vermonters talked decades ago. So they put me on a Vermont Transit bus down in Nunthill Flats for 15 cents. And my grandpa Fletcher picked me up with that little Chevy pickup at the corner store on 15. It does feel like time traveling, except that Fred is very much alive now. Right. He still lives in Fletcher. He's now in his mid-70s. We did reach out to him, though he didn't get back to us. But Julie gave us this tape with Fred's permission because she says it's not just his way of talking, but even his ideology. It's something you hear less and less of in Vermont. I think that's what makes life. You work the land and you feed it and... You take care of the land, the land takes care of your cows, and the cows take care of you. That's the way I was was brought up. Accents preserve your culture. They're as much a part of your culture as the food you eat and the holidays that you celebrate. So when you lose a way of speaking, you lose a piece of your culture. On our first episode of Brave Little State, we try to answer a question about the history and the future of the Vermont accent. Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's new people-powered journalism podcast. I'm Angela Evansy. And I'm Alex Keefe. And before we get too deep into our first episode, we want to explain a little bit about how this whole project works, because Brave Little State is about basically what you want it to be about. Right. You submit a question that you want VPR to investigate, and then you get to vote for the question you think we should do our next episode on. Then, if your question wins, we work to find the answers together. So, for example, in this episode, we try to find out... Where did the Vermont accent come from, and where is it going? 
And then later on, I get a little lost trying to find this thing. What is that bizarre thing at the Waterbury Rest Area? But first, <clears throat> Brave Little State is made possible by the VPR Journalism Fund and by Darn Tough Vermont. For nearly 40 years, knitting premium quality all-weather performance socks in the sock capital of the world, Northfield, Vermont. Darn Tough is committed to making the most comfortable, durable, best-fitting socks money can buy. And they're unconditionally guaranteed for life. Check them out at darntough.com. But if you were a real Vermonter, wouldn't it be darn tough Vermont? That is a very good question. And that is something that struck the ear of our first brave question asker. Uh, my name's Erin Creeley, and I love Vermont. Erin lives in St. Albans, and she says she also loves the Vermont accent. But back when she first moved here a few years ago, she says she didn't even know there was a Vermont accent, even though she grew up right next door in New Hampshire. To realize that there was this whole other accent in my own backyard that I had never heard before just, you know, flipped my mind. It started one day just a little after she moved here when she was working at a doctor's office. And this patient was in a rush and he said he was running short on time, except he didn't exactly say time. It had this little diphthong part of it and it dipped into almost a U or something and like what like like try to I know it's it not gonna be her almost Irish I guess it was like time 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 like that now if you're Vermont born and bred maybe you don't hear anything strange about that word time but if you've ever moved to a totally new place, maybe you've had this experience before. Erin says once she got an ear for it, she started hearing the accent more and more. Then one day, she was poking around on YouTube. So one of the videos I was watching had this spot from VTrans. That's the Vermont Agency of Transportation. And the video was about winter driving safety. It had the barn and these gentlemen walking in out of the snow. So how were the roads this morning? In just two miles. I had seven people off the road. They're sitting around this table. It looks like they're about to play poker. And instead, they're talking in very serious tones about the need to be safe while driving. I'd say the safest place to be is behind that snowplow. It's better to get there late and get there alive. I think it's about time we head back out. And it had a great range of the spectrum of Vermont accents. And Aaron says that got her curious about the different accents within Vermont and why there might be different accents and where they came from. So I asked her where she thought we should start looking for answers to her questions. I'll try to point them out. And she pointed back to that V-Trans video. This guy right here with the... <laughs> I was going to say the guy with the facial hair, but I think they all have facial hair. He has what I think is the most distinctive accent. So maybe we'll start by finding the snowplow guy. Yeah. Good afternoon, Steve Roger Randolph. This is Gerald. Hello, is this Gerald Kinney? This is Gerald Kinney. Gerald Kinney is the name of the snowplow guy in question, except he no longer drives the plows. He's now in charge of the folks who drive the plows. I'm living in the great state of Vermont. Can't get much better than I am. Has anyone ever told you you have a Vermont accent before? I've heard that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what a Vermont accent is. I think everybody else talks funny. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not really sure where it comes from. 
Gerald is 44 years old. He works in Randolph. He lives in Randolph. He was born and raised in Randolph. His parents are from Randolph. Some of his grandparents, too. Gerald says he sounds exactly like his dad. Yeah, in fact, if you don't know which one of us is speaking, I've heard tell people that have known us both for our entire lives will get us mixed up. Gerald says he's pretty much stayed in Randolph his whole life, save for a stint in the army where he used to get made fun of for the way he talks. He says he and his wife are now doing family genealogical research, and he found his ancestors came to Vermont through New Brunswick and Halifax from Ireland, Scotland, the British Isles. He thinks maybe the way those immigrants talked might have something to do with the way some Vermonters talk today. The right people, given the right circumstances, kind of slide back into that. What we might hear as an Irish dialect now, you know, the enunciations and... I don't know how to explain it well, but... I, I think I know it's kind of a lilt. It's almost like kind of sing-songy sometimes. Almost, yeah. You know, especially if you give somebody a couple beers. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> right. Give him a couple of points to Guinness and watch him go. Turns out Gerald actually could be onto something here. But before we get too far into the history of the Vermont accent, I wanted to get an idea of exactly what it is. So we asked for help from you. I don't know if I'm calling the right place. Uh, my name is Agnes Barcelo. I'm from Milton, Vermont. Hi, my name is Alan Rawls. I grew up in Moncton. Courtney Mahaney. I now live in Santa Cruz, California. I'm from Jericho, Vermont. From Brattleboro. I'm from Burlington, Vermont, born and raised. Saw this on Facebook. I think I'm doing this right. We worked with Julie Roberts, the linguist from UVM, and we came up with this prompt, kind of like a little story. It's about a man named Don and a woman named Dawn, and they live on a little farm in Vermont. Anyway, you'll see. But the point is, the prompt contains certain keywords that are designed to bring out a Vermont accent in someone who already has one. So we asked you to record yourself reading it out loud and send it to us. And you did. Don and Don lived on a little farm near a mountain in Vermont. One bitterly cold winter night, Don heard a racket down by the cow barn. She was frightened that something happened to her favorite cow, Violet. Don quickly buttoned her coat and went right out the back door toward the barn. She found the gate wide open. Dawn shouted for Dawn to get up out of bed. Get a flashlight and a pair of mittens, she said. Dawn yawned, walked down the stairs, and flicked on the front light. He saw Violet through the window. All the while, the cow had been hiding out on the front porch. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. We got about 60 responses from all over Vermont, from as far away as California and Senegal and Rome. You could find them all at bravelittlestate.org. You want to be like six to eight inches away from the Okay. Microphone? Then I talked into a studio with our linguist. I'm Julie Roberts from UVM. And with our brave question asker. Hi, this is Erin. Erin Creeley. Ta-da. And Erin explained to Julie a little bit more about where her curiosity comes from. I got interested in the idea of a Vermont accent. It's definitely just more of a curiosity and a, an appreciation for it. My interest in an accent is not mean-spirited. Right. Erin says it's not like she thinks it's cute or funny, but she wanted to learn more about the Vermont accent in hopes of learning more about Vermont, her new home. So I started by playing Erin and Julie some recordings that you sent us to try to learn more about the characteristics that make up this thing we all hear as the Vermont accent. Don and Don lived on a little farm near a mountain in Vermont. This prompt was sent to us by Gerald Kinney, the guy we found from the V-Trans snowplow video. I'm just going to skip through it here because you know how it ends. They find the cow. 
All the while, the cow had been hiding out on the front porch. Julie Roberts, what do you hear as a linguist? What's, what are the features that are going on? Lots of stuff. <laughs> that was a great clip. Um, he definitely had a glottal stop, uh, several glottal stops. And I got to pause here for a moment because the glottal stop is maybe the big characteristic most associated with the present-day Vermont accent. Julie Roberts says a glottal stop can happen when you're trying to say something that ends in T, but your tongue doesn't quite touch the roof of your mouth. For example, you would get something like Vermont. Vermont. Instead of Vermont. Uh, so if you said Vermont, you said it, you would not let your tongue touch the top of your mouth? <laughs> Vermont. Vermont. But you do close the sound off in your glottis. Vermont. And that's the glottal stop. Aaron says to her it kind of sounds like somebody threw the word Vermont at the wall, then splat, it just stops. But Vermont isn't the only word where you hear this. In fact, in the prompts we got from you, there are glottal stops all over the place. She was frightened that something happened to her favorite cow. Frightened that something happened to her favorite cow, Violet. Get a flashlight and a pair of mittens, she said. Get a flashlight and a pair of mittens. A pair of mittens, she said. My husband always makes fun of me for how I say mittens. But Julie Roberts says a glottal stop alone does not the Vermont accent make. There are other traits, too. One of is the long I, as in time or kite or fight, which comes out sounding like something like... Oi, so foit, time. Don yawned, walked down the stairs, and flicked on the front light. Flicked on the front light. Flicked on the front light. The other one is the ow sound, as in cow or now, and that comes out more like cow. Her favorite cow. The cow barn. Gales. The cow had been hiding on the front porch. The other Vermont accent trait, maybe you noticed if you were a bit confused about who is doing what in our little story. Was it Don or Dawn? In many areas of the United States, the man's name Don, D-O-N, and the woman's name Dawn, D-A-W-N, sound the same. Dawn and Dawn. Dawn and Dawn. Dawn and Dawn. Dawn and Dawn. It's called the low back merger because we consider those low back vowels, the ah and the ah. Okay, so we've got a low back merger plus a glottal stop and some long eyes and some long ows, and it all adds up to the Vermont accent. But Julie Roberts, the linguist, says it didn't always sound the way it does today. And we know that because we have recordings like this one. Is that a microphone? I get to talk and I talk all night. That's good. All right, all right. What we're hearing now is the voice of Mrs. Emma Ball from Ferrisburg, Vermont. She's listed as being a seamstress and a farmer's wife. She was already 83 years old when this was recorded. And the audio quality isn't all that great, but that's because it was made on August 17, 1934. Here's Mrs. Ball laughing about how, when she was a little girl, as punishment for misbehaving, her mother used to tie her up. When I was a child, take and tie me in the chair with a twine string. Julia Nichols, she wouldn't be with me, of course, and so she'd tie her with it. Julia would cry, and I'd begin to play with the string and didn't mind anything about it at all. <laughs> Back in the 1930s, this team of linguists was roaming around northern New England just talking to people, hundreds of them, and they got some of them on tape, and they put together this thing called the Linguistic Atlas of New England. It's kind of like a series of maps showing the way people talk in different parts of the Northeast. 
And we're listening to Mrs. Ball here because Julie Roberts says she's a good example of how the Vermont accent used to sound. I think it probably originally sounded not hugely different from the very oldest speakers that we have now and from the 1930s speakers. So take a listen to this clip. This is Mrs. Ball talking about how rarely she ever leaves her house, except uh, just before the interview when she had to run an errand. But I had an errand. Oh, they wanted me to get a pound of butter for supper. And I got it and I carried it to them because I had no place to keep it cool. So they said they'd put it in the icebox and keep it. When I played this tape for Julie Roberts, she noticed right away that Mrs. Ball was kind of dropping her R's, maybe like somebody from Boston. Yeah, she does not have R. There are still some R-less speakers in Vermont. I'm not gonna, definitely not going to say that there aren't, but more people tend to say R's than used to, and she does not at the ends of words like butter. Pound of butter for supper. On the other hand, she pretty consistently says I for I. And there's this other fascinating moment in this old recording that gets back to what Gerald Kinney, the V-trans worker, was saying about his ancestors influencing the way he talks. At one point, Mrs. Ball uses an old Scottish phrase, a dinna ken, meaning I don't know. And listen to how she gets a little peeved when the linguist interviewing her doesn't understand what she's saying. Yeah, I can. No, I can. no, dinna ken, don't you know what it is? Don't you honestly know what dinna ken means? So she goes on to talk about her heritage. Like many Vermonters, one of her ancestors was from Scotland. And they lived right across the railroad track in a little brick house. And my grandfather Powers was, they claim, was Irish. They tell me there's Irish about us, and I know there is, and the twist of my tongue. And that I know. Don't you know you can tell those things? Our question asker, Aaron Creeley, also picked up on this linguistic echo from the British Isles. Back when she first heard the guy in a rush at the doctor's office, that guy who said time instead of time. So she put the question to our linguist. When I first heard this uh, gentleman say time, it sounded to me similar to when I've heard Irish people say the, the word as well. And I didn't realize that there was that strong sound connection to perhaps the Irish or the Scots-Irish accent to Vermont. Very likely, yes. It really makes a difference who settled into an area and whether or not, for example, they said R and whether they didn't or how their vowels were made. But certainly there are some influences from settlement that persist through the years. And Julie says a lot of what helped preserve those twists of the tongue, as Mrs. Ball called them, was the very landscape of New England. She says unlike urban accents, which thrive on a bunch of people being crammed together, just talking to each other all the time, rural accents like Vermont's stay alive through isolation. So Vermont's mountains and rivers and hills and hollows, they all formed like these little linguistic ramparts protecting their own variations of the accent. In fact, when those researchers were drawing up the linguistic atlas of New England back in the 30s, Julie Roberts says they divided Vermont into two regions, split right along the Green Mountains. Eastern Vermont going with eastern New England and Boston and New Hampshire, western Vermont going with upstate New York. And you can still hear the differences within Vermont today. Mm, Kind of. One big difference between eastern and western New England is in eastern New England, you were much more likely to find Arliss varieties and um, much more likely to get that kind of sound before R that you get in barn for barn. Barn, like, yeah. like yeah. B-A-I-R-N almost? Something, yeah. Something like that? Now, see, that's the park your car in Harvard Yard sound, only if you're Arliss, you get pack 
or barn, but if you put the R back in, you get barn or park. And yeah, you can actually hear some of that echo of the older Vermont accent with some of the prompts that you sent us. Dawn heard a racket down by the cow barn. Dawn quickly buttoned her coat and went right out the back door toward the barn. The back door toward the barn. Toward the barn. Oh yeah, definitely. I heard a barn or two. Accents change. Vermont's changed with technology when it became just a quick car ride to get over those green mountains, and also with society. Julie says women, for example, tend to have softer accents nowadays than men because they left home to find work. So now you're probably asking yourself maybe the hardest question of the whole episode, the question that Aaron Creedley also wondered about, what is the future of the Vermont accent? The linguists I talked to for this episode say predicting the future of an accent is almost impossible. They say fading accents aren't like dying languages. You can't really preserve them because people don't usually intend to have an accent. It's just this byproduct of being around other humans. But Roberts did say if you want some idea about how the Vermont accent of tomorrow will sound, talk to young people. Maybe people like Matt Allen. Matt. Not Matt. Matt is 18 years old. He lives in Albany, Vermont. He grew up in Wolcott, or as he makes sure to say it... Wolcott. Wolcott, Vermont. Right. As you can hear, Matt takes a little bit of pride in his glottal stop. And when you listen to the prompt he sent us, that's the little story about Violet the cow, you can hear it, but not many other accent traits. Don and Don lived on a little farm near a mountain in Vermont. One bitterly cold winter night... Don heard a racket down by the cow barn. Now, obviously, Matt isn't a stand-in for how all young Vermonters sound, but a lot of the tape we got from younger people did sound like this. A strong glottal stop, dropping the T's, but not a lot else. And Julie Roberts says that sounds about right. I have found in my research down to the youngest children have the glottal stop. In fact, I have a lovely tape of a three-year-old saying kitten. (laughs) Um, So it's, I mean, that is not going anywhere. That's here to stay. What disappears, she says, are those traits you might associate with an old-time Vermonter, like Fred Fletcher, the farmer we heard at the top of the episode. Things like the long eye. It's a way of life, so it is. And yes, those cows may not be around much longer. So the owl goes away first, the eye goes away second, and the glottal stop doesn't go away at all. But Julie Roberts says that does not mean the Vermont accent is disappearing. Yes, the Vermont accent will change. It has changed. It will change. Some people may think that it's gone, but um, I prefer to think that it's just different. I want to give the last word to Gerald Kinney. He's the guy in the snowplow video who kind of inspired this whole episode. Kinney says he can hear those differences now in his lifetime. How some of the old-timers, as he calls them, they might drop their R's like somebody from Boston, how they talk a lot slower than he does. And it worries him that something might be lost in all these changes. As he tells me, it's like another stone out of the stone wall that you just won't get back. It's all part of my upbringing and the influence of my grandparents and my parents and the people that I know and love here in in Vermont. So if we don't carry on whatever our heritage is, For me, I guess it'd be my accent. Then my daughters and their kids probably uh, 
won't even know what we're talking about today. Al Keefe put that piece together, and a big thanks to Aaron Creeley, our first ever Brave Question Asker, for being curious about the Vermont accent, and to all the people who have submitted examples of their own accents. You can find them all at bravelittlestate.org. We're going to close today's episode with a shorter answer to a second question. But first, we want to say thanks again to our sponsor, Darn Tough Vermont, knitting premium quality all-weather performance socks for all of life's active pursuits, still made locally in Northfield, Vermont, and guaranteed for life. Visit them at darntough.com. Okay, back to the second question. So a while back, we were gathering questions at a moth event at the Flynn Center in Burlington. Testing one, two, testing. Hi. Hello. And we got a question from Will Taylor, who lives in Colchester, that we just loved. What is that bizarre thing at the Waterbury Rest Area? Will said the thing is fenced off now, but you used to be able to walk this path right up to it. There's that little hill, you walk up the hill, and there's this weird cement thing. It's like on a big pedestal, and it's basically like a giant cement bowl almost. I mean, it looks like it was part of, like, industry or something. There's no sign, I don't know what it is, and I want to know what it is. So, obviously, we had to go on a quest for the thing. I drove down I-89 one evening, and I have to say, I had high hopes of finding this big, mysterious object. But my hopes were dashed, like completely dashed. I could not find the thing. I started on the southbound side. Okay, this is the rest area I thought would have the thing, but it's just a pull-off, and I don't see anything. I saw something big and cement, but it was more of a giant block than a giant bowl. It looked like an old bridge footing. I asked some people who were idling in their cars. A weird thing. And I had no luck. I didn't know what other rest area I might look at because I don't see anything weird here. There's one on the other side. So I looped over to the northbound rest area. Same deal. Is there anything I'm missing here? Like I'm not seeing? Uh, some rocks, some fences, some signs. Where is the thing? Where is the thing? I went to a few gas stations in Waterbury. It's a, like a bowl on a platform. Does that sound familiar to you? Doesn't sound familiar to me. I got some completely useless advice at the park and ride. I have no idea even where the Waterbury Rest Area is. Um, I mean, there's the re- re- reservoir. Try the Waterbury <laughs> Reservoir. Maybe that's the rest area. I'd go and rest in on the reservoir with a with a canoe. Nobody had even heard of the thing. I'm actually too embarrassed to say how many times I looped back and forth on 89 so I could take one more look at each rest area. It was in vain. Okay, that was a failure. I eventually learned that my troubles finding the thing were a big part of the story of the thing. I also learned that there are other things all over the state, and they're pieces of art. The piece in question at the Waterbury Rest Area is actually one of 14 pieces of sculpture that we have um, on the highway here in the state of Vermont. That's Jack Zeilinga. He's Vermont's assistant state curator. They are strewn about our rest stops um, all up and down Interstate 89 and Interstate 91 between you know, the Canadian border and the Massachusetts border. These sculptures were the brainchild of a UVM art professor and sculptor named Paul Aschenbach. Back in 1969 and again in 1971, he invited artists from all over the world to come to Vermont to create these huge sculptures out of marble and concrete. Austria, Germany, Yugoslavia, Japan. There was a big push in the 1960s, uh, certainly in Europe, to to try to have this idea of, of fostering peace through art and through public art. 
Aschenbach was a big subscriber to this philosophy. And Vermont's interstates were a prime location for public art. At that time in the early history of our highway system and, you know, people out on the road, all these family road trips, would really be able to see and appreciate these at all the different rest areas. So... This explains the thing. And the sculpture in question, Waterbury, is actually a sculpture um, by Aschenbach himself. It is a concrete sculpture that weighs five tons, and it's about 12 feet high. It's got a, a large square bottom, and then it's, it's got um, the wrong term is a spoon standing on end, but it almost has that look to it. The thing used to be visible from the road, and you could walk right up to it. This was when it caught the eye of Will Taylor, the guy who asked us about it. But today, it's completely fenced off and hidden by trees. They're kind of a hidden gem around the state in, in, many, uh, in many ways in this day and age. Jack Seilinga says low visibility isn't uncommon for the pieces in this collection. Sometimes you have to hunt around for them. But some of them are hiding in plain sight. That cement thing I thought was a bridge footing? Turns out that was one of those sculptures. I found a few posts online about this stuff. One of them, at the excellent blog Obscure Vermont, was about a piece in the woods near the rest area up in the town of Georgia. It's like two giant puzzle pieces set 20 feet away from one another. The cement is turning black and growing lichen. Chad Abramovich writes the blog, and I think he describes the sculptures perfectly. He calls them monuments to enigmatic decrepitude. Some of these sculptures are in disrepair. There are no plaques or signs describing their history. And even if there were, 21st century drivers don't exactly linger at rest stops. But maybe we should. Next time you're at a rest stop, get out of the car, walk around, and see if you can catch a glimpse of a giant thing. You can find photos of The Thing and other Vermont rest area sculptures at our website, bravelittlestate.org. You can also find there the full collection of the Vermont accent voice samples that you sent to us. Thanks for listening to the very first episode of Brave Little State. Remember, this show doesn't work without you. So head over to our website to submit your questions and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund and from our sponsor, Darn Tough Vermont. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode was by Nick Jaina and Philip Weigel. And Lee Rosevere, Poddington Bear, and Lache Swing. There are lots of people at VPR who we want to thank in this first episode. We'll go quick. Jonathan Butler, Franny Bastion, John Van Hoosen. A big thank you to Leslie Blount, John Dillon, and a special thanks this month to Emily Elfin Johnson and Sarah Simon, who got the podcast into iTunes and Google Play and all those other places you get your podcasts. So go forth and subscribe. Thanks also to the folks at WBEZ's Curious City. And to Jennifer Brandell and the amazing crew at Harkin. We'll be back next month when I'll tackle this question from Sean Obarski. What's with the high occurrence of embezzlement cases that we see in Vermont. In the meantime, hit us up on Twitter at BraveStateVT. And remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.